Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Jessica Van Tyne Birkenholtz, Associate Professor of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies and Asian Studies at Pennsylvania State University and winner of the AAR Book Award in Textual Studies. She's here to speak to us about her book, Reciting the Goddess, Narratives of Place and the Making of Hinduism in Nepal, published with Oxford University Press. Uh, congratulations, Jessica, and thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This was a really interesting book. I hope that some listeners will will tackle this, even if it's not the subject that they are working on directly, because I think there's some interesting uh, kind of broader issues that I think will uh, uh, help them think about other subjects and communities. But um, before we get into that, can you can you help us uh, think about Hinduism in Nepal? So some people might be familiar with Hinduism from other contexts, um, but what what do we need to know about uh, Hindu religious identity and practice in this part of South Asia to uh, start to understand your project? Right, that's a great question, um, and a question that really is at the heart of the book, actually, um, in many ways, because. One of the objectives um, of this book was to forefront Hinduism in Nepal. So oftentimes when we think of South Asia, we think of India for obvious reasons. Um, It's physically, geographically, culturally, politically, economically dominant in the region. Um, But it does not constitute South Asia in its entirety. And when we oftentimes think of Hinduism, the first thing that we think of, of course, is India. And again, for for obvious reasons, um, but it is not the only place that we find Hinduism in South Asia. And in fact, Nepal has um, a very long history as being a Hindu kingdom, uh, and it was, in fact, a Hindu monarchy up until 2008. Um, So its status, in any case, um, as a Hindu kingdom, nation, culture, um, is really very fresh and very prominent. Um, And so one of the things that's always interested me about working in Nepal is trying to bring more, you know, to highlight, illuminate Nepal as a very rich cultural, religious context in which to think about religion, to think about South Asia. And for Hinduism, um, you know, oftentimes, again, kind of Nepali forms of Hinduism get conflated with Indian forms, just as kind of Nepal in general, oftentimes gets conflated as part of India, or it's, it's, just not thought of, it's not brought up in the conversation um, about South Asia or about Hinduism. Um, And so one of the things that I seek to do in in my work is to give some attention to the different religious cultures in Nepal, most specifically Hindu religious cultures. And, you know, in terms of what's there or what's not there and how it relates to what we find in Hindu India, there, of course, is a great degree of continuity. Um, Mm. And, you know, and in many respects, the fact that any of these um, states or nations in South Asia ended up how they did, you know, part of India or not, um, where lines were drawn or not, is, you know, these are modern 
political nation states. Um, and, and so there's a lot of cultural, um, linguistic, uh, religious continuity and flow back and forth, particularly between the southern strip of Nepal and, and northern India. Um, but there are also a lot of important differences um, between forms of Hinduism that we see in Nepal versus what we see in India. And of course, it bears saying that India being such a massive country with so many different cultures and religious practices and whatnot, to, it's, you know, it's a, a false um, gives a false sense of reality that India is monolithic or Hinduism in India is monolithic because of course it's not. Um, and nor is it in, in Nepal either. But in terms of kind of what we see on the ground um, historically and in Nepal today, there are two dominant forms of Hinduism. Um, the first being kind of the, the Newars. The Newars are considered to be the indigenous inhabitants of the Kathmandu Valley, which historically constituted Nepal proper. Um, again, kind of Nepal as we know it today, that is a much more recent um, development. And historically, when referring to Nepal, that just referred to the Kathmandu Valley and its um, immediate environs surrounding it. Um, and the group that, uh, the population that lived there were the Nawars. And the Nawars practice both Hinduism, Buddhism, and a combination of both. So it's a, a very common kind of joke that if you ask um, a Nawar, are you Hindu or, or Buddhist? They'll say yes, right? Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of um, fluidity in, in, in terms of religious practice among the Nawars, which lends a really interesting kind of flavor to, to Nawar culture. So um, the, the book that's at the heart of my, of my book um, is a Nawar originated as a Nawar tradition um, and, and narrative and text and so on. But the other dominant um, group, and, and I really do mean dominant now, they are um, politically, economically, socially dominant in Nepal um, and have been since um, the 18th, late 18th century are the Parvatiya Hindus, um, the Hill Hindus. And the Hill Hindus, the Pabritiyas, they, their um, heritage traces back to India, um, but they came from the Western Hills outside of, you know, Nepal proper, um, back when it just meant the Kathmandu Valley. And when the Pabritiyas came in and they conquered the valley, there was, you know, um, a mixture of a mixing of these two different dominant forms of, of Hinduism, as well as other religious traditions like Buddhism and other indigenous um, forms of religion as well. So we see a lot of, so Nawars have um, a lot of kind of practices and traditions that are really practiced only among Nawars and, and they would, seem familiar, I think, to anyone who is familiar with Hinduism from different parts of India, um, similar but but new, right, in that way of kind of within the, the great diversity and realm of possibility that, that is Hinduism um, all over South Asia and, and beyond now. Um, 
So the Newars and the Padratis are the two kind of dominant forms of Hinduism. Um, today, as I said, the Hill Hindus who are all high caste, um, they're Bhavan and Chatri, which is equivalent um, in Nepali to the Sanskrit Brahmin and Kshatriya uh, classes um, at the top of the social hierarchy. And um, Newars have a very extensive caste system of their own. So they have Brahmins, Newar Brahmins as well, and um, kind of the, the whole gamut. Um, but these two populations are, are really interacting and intersecting. And that comes out very much um, in this textual tradition that is the focus of my book. Um, because it originated as a Newar tradition, but then as um, the Kathmandu Valley became infused and with this influx of Parvatiya Hindus who then also took up the, tr the tradition, we see it really become kind of um, a, a near universal Nepali Hindu tradition um, practiced by both Newar Hindus and Parvatiya Hindus. And interestingly, one of the things that um, has always surprised me or at least piqued my curiosity uh, back when I first started this project was that Indian Hindus who happened to be living in Nepal were completely unaware of it, um, which really, for me, highlights one of the many ways in which this is a Nepali-specific um, tradition. And again, that's one of the things that excited me about this project in the first place was finding something that was unique to Nepal um, and a real contribution that kind of was born you know, in Nepali soil and culture um, and religious practice. And um, it certainly becomes more than that. And it certainly um, takes in a lot of, uh, a lot of Hinduism from outside of its immediate context. Um, but it really is, has been a very kind of, in many respects, unifying to the degree that any one thing in the Hindu world is unifying for all Hindus, um, but has become kind of the main Hindu text um, in Nepal and has been for a very long time. And um, so at the center of your study is this goddess and the tradition developed around her. Um, can you tell us a little bit about who this goddess is, uh, about her, her, her birth and emergence and transformation over time? Sure. Um, the goddess in question, her name is Swastani, um, which is a really, she's a really interesting figure um, because she's not a very, she's rather opaque. Um, and it's difficult to pinpoint her in certain ways, um, unlike various other Hindu goddesses um, in the Hindu world. So Swastani, um, I translate as the goddess of one's own place, Swastan, and then the feminization E at the end. Um, but that's not very specific. And whereas so many other goddesses' names say something very specific about them or their powers or their purpose, their mythology, what have you. Um, so Swastani, this tradition and the goddess, the, the earliest reference that we have to her is the text itself. Um, and the text is the Swastani Vrata Katha, which means the story of the ritual vow to the goddess Swastani. And 
this text dates back to the late 16th century. And one of the kind of, again, a curiosity of this tradition is that we really have no, almost no evidence of the tradition of the goddess outside of these manuscripts, these Swasani Pratakata manuscripts, which just for ease of those who are not familiar with this part of the world, I'll refer to as the SVK. Um, and so Swastani herself, she is worshipped primarily in the form of this text. So she is brought out um, only once a year for the course of a month. The text itself is read over the, the month of Mag, which translates to kind of mid-January to, or mid-December to mid-January. No, sorry, mid-January to mid-February. Um, and during that month, the text is read from cover to cover. Um, and historically, these were handwritten manuscripts, of course, um, and that was the goddess herself. Um, she didn't have any graven images, um, any other kind of drawings. Those emerged much later in the tradition. Um, so really the only, we have only three statues that we know of to her, two are extant. Um, and one was just consecrated within um, the 21st century. So within the last 15 years, um, leaving two others that were built about the same time around 1674, I'm sorry, 1764. Um, and so it's very striking that she is a goddess without a lot of iconography. Um, that being said, in, in various manuscripts, there was a slow emergence of iconography that depict her initially as a consort of Shiva, the great god Shiva. Um, but ultimately, there's a, a major shift in her iconography, which again is very limited and, and never exists outside of manuscripts. Um, but the shift is from her being positioned, um, seated next to Shiva, and the way that she has been depicted now for a very long time, about a hundred or a little bit more years or so is that she's seated on a lotus flower in the middle of, encircled by the Astamatraka, the eight mother goddesses. Um, so she remains kind of an interesting and um, oblique figure. The story that the SVK tells doesn't say anything about her origin per se. Um, it, it just teaches humans um, how to perform the ritual vow to her, but does not tell us really anything more about her own story or who she is. She just kind of appears. Um, and so she's, to me, very fascinating in that respect as well. Now, she, uh, the tradition around this goddess changes dramatically over time. Um, you kind of started to allude to some of the, the conditions which uh, made those changes possible. Um, but uh, what, what can you tell us about, um, you know, how this came from a kind of local to a translocal type of um, uh, tradition? Um, what were the kind of key factors in the transition of uh, the practices around this goddess? Uh, what were they that, that, that changed over time? Well, kind of the one of the main arguments in the book is 
um, or objectives in the book is to recover the history and development of the SVK. So again, as our really only source for this goddess, which incidentally, I became fascinated by this text and it was um, my interest in her as a goddess really kind of was secondary initially. Um, and of course she's a key component, but she is so in the background in many respects. Um, I mean, she's she's both Swastani Parameshwari, so she's this preeminent um, divine female divinity, um, but she also is is um, so physically absent, um, which says a lot about kind of tantric influences uh, on her. But in any case, the so the the way that this text developed. Um, from being really just the oldest text that we have, told only this very local folk legend about Swistani and about a mother and her son and daughter-in-law, um, the mother being very pious, um, the son also being very responsible um, and dutiful, and the daughter-in-law not, right? She's kind of the, the opposite of, of the two. And um, and this shows us the way to incur the goddess's wrath, but also to receive her benevolence. Um, and the way that the, the story, so it stays in that form for about the first 200 years um, of, of its written history. And it's also worth noting that this tradition has an unbroken textual history. So we have oldest, um, the oldest exantendus from 1573 CE, and we have texts up to the present day without any kind of break or absence in between. And the number of texts that we have continue to grow and grow and grow, suggesting the growth of the tradition. So the first 200 years are pretty consistent, um, just focusing on that local legend. Um, around the 18th century, we suddenly see the infusion in three different phases of Puranic narratives. So very well-known mythology drawn from kind of Brahmanical classical Hinduism and the normative Sanskrit texts of the Puranas um, that are a warehouse of mythology um, for kind of Hinduism at large. And what I argue in the book is that the three phases in which these pranic narratives are added into the SVK, both of the timing of those phases and the particular narratives that were added in during each one reflects broader conversations, discourses, political events, and repercussions that were happening in medieval Nepal and the larger region, right, including India. Um, and so these are not one-to-one -one correlations necessarily. It doesn't map that specifically onto each other, but when you look at the history and development of the text and when it goes from being a local um, folktale in many ways or folk legend um, to becoming its own Puranic text, um, very much mirroring, mimicking um, some very well-known Mahapranas, great pranic texts. Um, we see, and what I argue is that we see a relationship there that this local text, the SVK, was being used both as an archive to document, but also to a warehouse to process these um, local and regional and translocal events that were happening 
and the way in which kind of the lay population in Nepal was taking all of that in and responding to it. Um, so this is very much a lay tradition um, and circulating among the people. And what I argue is that, again, we can kind of see the contours and the, the specific narratives that were chosen at these different times to include are reflecting broader discourses about um, what it means to be a Hindu in Nepal vis-a-vis -vis outside of Nepal and specifically India. So, um, and this is where kind of the making of Hinduism comes into play that I argue um, that the SVK was a really kind of benign and, and whether it was intentional or not, we'll never know, but it served as this really important medium for having these conversations um, among just the general population who was participating in this and who was taking in all of these outside influences and processing them and rejecting some, accepting others or tweaking them and, and, and so on. Um, so that's kind of how this overall process without you know, getting into the specifics of it, um, that we can see that Nepal always positioned itself as a very kind of historical accounts and scholarly accounts always suggest that Nepal was very isolated, that its rulers really sought to um, limit outside exposure. And, and they did to a very large degree, but part of what I seek to demonstrate in this book is that there was actually much more awareness and conversation going on in Nepal um, both at the ruling level, but also among kind of the general population. Now, there's there's a great deal in the book that, of course, we don't have time to cover, unfortunately. Um, so I certainly encourage listeners to to get the book, and especially if they're interested in um, kind of South Asian literary traditions, uh, the the tensions between local and uh, and translocal or even global now uh, traditions and how they work, ideas about centers and peripheries. I know I certainly benefited in my own work from from thinking about it with your text. Um, but um, I, I'm wondering from your perspective, how do you imagine that others in the study of religion might might benefit from your book, um, either in your, you know, perhaps some of your conclusions or some of the approaches you've taken with the your your textual archive? What What do you think? Uh, others might uh, uh, learn from your book? Well, I think um, there's, it serves as a model in a couple of different ways. I mean, there's, you know, for, for scholars of religion who are coming far afield um, geographically or in a different um, religious tradition, certainly the kind of textual work um, that I did for this project of really deep diving in archives and doing a very close reading of these different manuscripts to reconstruct the way in which this tradition evolved and developed into something um, really powerful. Uh, and, and, you know, I always say that it, it's, it's hidden in plain sight. I mean, this is a really dynamic archive um, that most Nepali households have a copy of it in their homes and, and continue to read it every year, um, but are unaware of just all the history that's behind this text. So kind of the close textual work um, that's involved, I think, can be instructive. Um, the, 
the way it helped me think about language was also important um, in seeing, so the, the text, the SVK has been written in Nawar, um, Nepali and Sanskrit and kind of the, di the dynamics and the relationships between those th three languages has been very interesting to look at um, and the ways that they interacted within this one particular textual tradition. So we often assume that Sanskrit is a cosmopolitan language and that Nepali and Nawar are both vernacular languages, which of course they are, um, but there's a bit of, it's not as linear as that and it's not um, as hierarch hierarch hierarchical um, in the sense of kind of a vertical hierarchy between them. So kind of thinking about the relationship between different languages um, at play within a particular tradition. And, you know, lastly, I would say that um, for those who are interested in certainly center and periphery, those kinds of conversations, local, translocal, but also women, um, a lot of this is, you know, a quote unquote women's tradition. Um, and I try and complicate what that means um, because when I started the project as a very um, naive uh, undergraduate student and then graduate student, um, that meant one thing to me and it means a very different thing to me now um, and the way I understand this tradition. And so there's a lot of um, a lot of food for thought in terms of women and women's traditions and texts and, and things of that nature. Um, so th those might be some access points for others. Well, um, it's it's certainly a wonderful book and, and well-deserving of the award. So congratulations. Thank you so much. It's a real honor. And I, uh, I, I feel very grateful um, to have my work recognized in this fashion and by scholars who are coming from outside of South Asian studies or Hindu studies. Um, and so thank you.